The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Thank you, Stacy. We're back in our season of each week having new songs written, and that one didn't exist uh, before this week. Uh, what a joy it is and a privilege to have such talented folks on our team to write and to sing and to praise the Lord in that way. Kids, you can head out and praise the Lord in your way uh, with Miss Faith and her team uh, to celebrate in your time uh, with um, teaching and time of celebrating there. This morning we begin again our rhythm, as it were, uh, our liturgical calendar, if you want to put it that way, of each summer we take a break from a series, or we end our series from the winter and uh, the spring, and we, we look into the Psalms, and we spend our summer in the Psalms, and we come and we look at all the various uh, types of Psalms, and we study them, and we, we ask the Lord to teach us uh, about ourselves and about who He is through them. Chimper Longman wrote this about the Psalms. He said, the Psalms teach us about God and our relationship with Him. That is the heart of theology. The Psalter may be thought of as a portrait gallery of God, presenting us with multiple images of who God is. That's the beauty of studying the Psalms. The Psalms give us language for our humanity. The Psalms give us a framework of how to approach God. The Psalms allow us to come and with great joy seek the Lord and express it in that way. And to say, you are my deep and profound satisfaction. I come into your gates with thanksgiving. I come into your presence with song. But for so many, we think that that's the only posture within the Christian life. That it's just supposed to be up. That, that we're all supposed to be happy all the time and full of energy, but we recognize that life is difficult and that there are times of lament. And for too many people within the church, we've bought into a lie that we're never supposed to feel sad, that we're never supposed to allow ourselves to go into those, those deep places, those concerning questions about faith. And the Psalms allow us to go there. The Psalms allow us uh, to wrestle with God and to lament. They allow us to move and to give voice to the fullness of who we are as human beings. Who we are as created in the image of God and for those who are in Christ to be restored in that image through His completed work. And so we're going to begin this Sunday looking at the Psalms. And the one that we're going to start with is Psalm 63. John Donay wrote this about Psalm 63. He said, The spirit and the soul of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into this one psalm. He said, All the beauty and the movements of the Psalter, all the Psalms, are contracted into this one psalm. And so we begin our summer series this morning uh, with Psalm 63. And I'd invite you in reverence for God's word of the reading and the hearing of it to stand uh, with me this morning. This is the word of the Lord. 
A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading, to the hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, we come with great humility and care to your word. We pray that your spirit would now teach us through your word. Apply it to our hearts. Would your word today be rightly divided clearly articulated, and received with full joy. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Psalms are written for us and written for us within the context of our contemporary lives. They're not something that's old and dusty and ancient and have no bearing on our lives today. They allow us to express who we are. And this morning as we come to Psalm 63, uh, we're going to see uh, several things that the, the ultimate truth of this psalm or the title would be that our satisfaction is in the Lord. Finding our satisfaction in the Lord would be the title. And what we'll look at are a few things this morning. First, that we seek God within the context of a desert. We seek God within the context of wilderness. What we find then, the second big point, is as, as we look and seek God in the context of the desert, that we find our true satisfaction only in Him. Our true satisfaction comes only in Him. There is an exclusivity uh, to the fountain of satisfaction that is given or afforded to us. And then the final thing that we see is at the end of the day, God vindicates our lives. God vindicates our lives. So the first thing uh, this morning, that we seek God while in a desert. Now you'll notice that's not in verse 1, but it comes in the introduction to the psalm, which is inspired by God uh, as well. And it says, a psalm of David, so we know that King David wrote this psalm uh, when he was in the wilderness uh, of Judah. And he said, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
Now we know that David, as a man, experienced time in the desert in two different uh, stages in his life. One was when he was the young teenage anointed king of Israel. He had not ascended to the throne yet. But King Saul, the king of Israel at that time, hated David and pursued David and was threatened by David. And David hid and fled into the wilderness. The other time for David being in the wilderness was later in his uh, time as king where his son Absalom rebelled against him, was setting up a coup d'etat over uh, the empire, as it were, the kingdom. He had established a kingship, as it were, in Hebron, and he was going to come against David. And David was pursued, as it were, into the wilderness. He was in the desert of Judah. And we know that that's the time that he's talking about here because he refers to himself as the king later in the psalm. He says the king in this way. And so he's referring to himself. And so we know that this is now a season of time for David as the king of Israel to be pursued into the wilderness of Judah. Now what we know about wildernesses or deserts is this, that deserts are not designed to sustain life. They don't have the salinable qualities that allow life to be sustained in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the desert. They weren't designed that way. They don't have the water sources. They don't have uh, the other resources necessary to sustain life for very long in a wilderness. Uh, David said, I find myself in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you've ever traveled to uh, the Middle East, if you've ever been to Israel, and you know anything about this section of Israel and the deserts and the wilderness of Judah, you know that it is a desolate and barren place, one of the most desolate and barren places in all of the world. And David found himself there. He looked around and he said, my life can't be sustained here because it's a desert. Well, what we learn and we can sort of extrapolate out from that is we see within the Scripture that David found himself in a true desert. But where we find ourselves is this world and this life has been described as a wilderness for us. That this life is a desert, as it were. This world, this life, though it can sustain us physically, it was never designed to sustain us eternally. That it doesn't have the salable qualities necessary to sustain our lives. Uh, That we live, as it were, as sojourners. That we live as travelers. Uh, We live the Bedouin existence that we are moving through uh, the desert, knowing that it's not our home. Knowing that true life comes from something else. Uh, That we need something besides what's offered in this world in order to satisfy the depths of our souls. We all know that intrinsically deep down we know that this life isn't satisfying ultimately to our souls. Whether a believer or a non-believer, we recognize that. And so David found himself physically in a desert But David also had a grander worldview that said, I know that this isn't my home. I know that I was designed for something more than that, that this isn't my life. But David's wilderness wasn't just physical and it wasn't just spiritual. It was incredibly personal. David was experiencing not only a true desert, physically speaking. He was experiencing a sense of going, this isn't my home spiritually. But he was experiencing a personal wilderness where his very son, Absalom, 
was rebelling against him and was desiring not just to take the throne, but as you know, if you're going to take the throne, what has to happen to the seated king? The seated king needs to be killed. And all the followers of the seated king, if they're not willing to bend the knee to the new king, to the pretender to the throne, would be killed with him. And so we know that David fled. And David also would have known that as he fled into the wilderness, that he was vulnerable. If Absalom had any decent military advisors, they would have attacked immediately and David would have been crushed. But it says that God confused the military advisors. And so they said, let's wait. Well, that gave David time enough with his armies to go out and to reestablish and to be able to defend themselves. And so David was incredibly vulnerable. David understood that he was being betrayed by his son. And the cause of the betrayal was ultimately his own sin. He looked around and he said, I'm in a desert. I don't have water. I don't have enough food. I'm not in Jerusalem where I'm supposed to be. I'm not in the palace. And the reason I'm not there is because I went and I took Bathsheba as my own. And I forced her to be with me. And the Lord punished me by saying, the sword is never going to leave your house. And that there will be rebellion within your house. One of your own will try to take your throne. And so David was in a crisis, as it were, of recognizing that everything in him, was, it was very personal. I want you to enter into those spaces as you read the Psalms, that you can step in and recognize how David was writing this psalm. That he wasn't sitting in some air-conditioned library uh, with his great little uh, iPad and going, this is cool, and he's kind of looking at other sources. He was coming in the midst of this physical, spiritual, and personal desert and writing these words. And in the midst of the desert, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of personal suffering, it says that he seeks the Lord. That it's in that context that he is seeking the Lord with earnestness is the best way to translate that word. Not early, as older translations have said. But with earnestness, David is seeking the Lord. And it's in the context of the wilderness. And that's important for you and for me to understand. Because so often we want to say, I'll seek God when everything is good. When there's green grass and there's wonderful flowing water uh, and life is grand and the kids are fine and the grandkids are fine and the money's fine and my health is fine, then I'll seek God uh, maybe then, but not in the other times. David is saying this to us. It's actually when things are, are difficult that, that you're stripped away and you're really learning God isn't what I seek. And by the way, the time to learn how to seek the Lord, the time to learn that God should be and is your deepest satisfaction is when things are going good. Because you'll be exposed otherwise. The disciplines are forged when life is good, not when life is difficult. Your disciplines, your spiritual disciplines, your spiritual life is exposed when life gets difficult. So let me ask, I'm going to do a poll question for you. How many of you in this room, and I want you to raise your hands high, have experienced difficulty in your life, a wilderness or desert experience? Now look around. You're not looking around. No, look around. 
The reason I want you to look around is this. I want you to recognize this is a universal problem. It's a human problem. You will experience difficulty. You will experience a desert. You will experience a wilderness. So go ahead and get ready for it. Because here's what you're going to need to figure out. What is your true satisfaction? If it's coming, where are you going to go to find satisfaction? If this world uh, isn't satisfying your deepest needs... Where are you going to go to have your deepest needs satisfied? So that's the second big point. Our true satisfaction is found only in the Lord. That's the second part of this psalm, verses 2 through 8. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Friends, you will find and we find our true satisfaction in, with, and by God alone. In, with, and by God alone. This is where St. Augustine uh, wrote his and drew from for his famous quote, that our hearts are restless within us until they find their rest in thee. He was speaking to God, our hearts are restless within us until they find their rest in you, God. Uh, that we know that there's got to be uh, something more. We, we know that there has to be something that we can find. And what David was convinced of here was that God was not going to hold himself back from those who earnestly seek him. David was convinced of this truth. God can be found. God is available. God isn't hiding out. God doesn't make it difficult for us to find Him. He says, if you seek Me with an earnest heart, you can find Me. Seek the Lord while He may be found. God is saying, I'm available. I'm here for you. No matter what you're going through, be it in the midst of this wilderness and life and the difficulties that come, whatever they may be, you can find Me. And David looked and he said, I know that I can find him. I'm convinced of that and I will earnestly seek him. David found his satisfaction in God both in the past, or in the past, the present, and the future. David had a deep understanding of who God was. He says, I remember being with you in the sanctuary. I remember that when I was on the throne and when I was in Jerusalem and everything seemed to be going right, I knew this. I could find you in the sanctuary. And now, when David was on the watches of the night, you know what you do on the watches of the night when you're being pursued by hostile armies? You keep looking because you're in fear for your life. And David said, it's on those watches. It's when I'm looking out into the darkness and there's no ambient light and it is pitch black except for the stars and the moon. It's in those moments of being exposed and vulnerable that I meditate, that I consider you. That I pray to you. That I seek you. And it reminds me of those times when, when I was with you in Jerusalem. And you were near. And you were there. Charles Spurgeon said this about David. There is no desert in his heart. Though there was a desert all around him. David's heart was fertile. David's heart was green. It was lush with clean water. 
You see, David knew this. David knew that God's love is better than life. That's what he says in verse 3. He said, because your steadfast love is better than life. The because, it's a causal statement. Because I know this, because I know your love is better than life, then this. He says this. What we understand in that is that two things are good. Life is good, but there's something better than this life. Life is good. How many of you would agree that life is good? We all would because we woke up, we ate some food, we want to stay in shape, we we want to do the things, we want to enjoy life because life is good. Life is a gift that God gives to us to enjoy life uh, that he says here and he breathed life into creation. He breathed life into Adam and Eve and he says life is good and that's not a bad thing to say I want to enjoy life. It's not a bad thing for a follower of Jesus Christ to say I want to enjoy life. But what David said, don't make that your end. Don't make that your ultimate goal is this life. Because what David understood was, I found something that's better than life. I found something that trumps this life. I've found God's covenant faithfulness. The word in the Hebrew is chesed. And it's a word that's translated a steadfastness. Uh, but his covenant loyalty or his loyalty and faithfulness, his love to us. And what it is saying is this. God is saying, I am going to be faithful to you and I'm going to be faithful to the promises that I've made regardless of if you're faithful to me. Regardless of if you run after your Bathshebas, regardless of if you go uh, and murder her husband, regardless of if you go uh, and do these things, regardless of if you get caught up for a season with the allurements of this life, I'm going to be faithful to you for I am your God and I am for you and not against you and I will never forget you, I will never forsake you, I am always with you. David said, God, your love is so steady and it is so unchangeable. And in view of such great love, isn't it strange? If you believe that, that God's love for you, His faithfulness to you, the glory of who He is, and that He has set that and given that to you, isn't it odd that we spend so much time in the pursuit of other things? It's actually illogical. That if God says, my love for you is the greatest good, my love for you is the greatest satisfaction that you could ever have, isn't it odd that we spend so much time and so much energy trying to nip, tuck, and peel, uh, trying to look better, trying to get the different car, get the different neighborhood, do the different job, have a little more money, another comma, another this. We spend all of this time, all of this energy in pursuing things, which are good, by the way, but they're not ultimately good. But we spend all of our energy on these things. David would say, I don't understand that. David would say, you're aiming at the wrong target. C.S. Lewis would say that if you aim at earth, you miss both earth and heaven. But if you aim at heaven, uh, you get heaven and God throws earth in as a bonus. So he's saying this, what are you aiming at? That we look at earthly satisfactions ultimately, though, will be unsatisfying. Earthly satisfactions will ultimately be unsatisfying. And each of you probably has a story along those ways that you finally got what you had to have. You said, if I just get this one thing, if I can accomplish this, if I can marry this person, if I can have this kid, if I can have this job, if I can not have this person or not have this job, whatever it is, if I can get all of these things, then I'm going to be satisfied. And the moment you get it, it fleets away. 
It dissipates. And do you know that it dissipates because we say stuff like this. Oh, I wish I could make this moment last forever. You ever made that statement or thought it anybody other than me? You know what you've done at that moment? You've destroyed the moment. You've asked it to do too much. You've asked it to do more than it was designed to do. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, Folks, this life was not designed to satisfy your souls. This life, vanity of vanities, all of life is vanities. Because I've pursued everything. Go have an argument with the writer of Ecclesiastes and say if you've done more and pursued more than he's pursued, he's going to go, I got you beat. I've tried it all. I've done everything there is under the sun and I had the wealth and the ability and the power to pursue everything that's under the sun. And you know what I found out? Cotton candy of cotton candies. All of life is cotton candy. Is another translation. Why don't you go home today, prepare a big meal for your family and let it consist of cotton candy. And see how satisfying that is. Now to the eyes, it seems awesome. The kids are going, I'd like that. That's why we're feeding your children back there, just to prove a point. Because we want them to be sick and hyper uh, and just drive you crazy. Uh, that's just a, this is a little lesson plan for you. Uh, no, we're really not. Some of you are going, what? But life is like that. Because if you dive in and you eat cotton candy, what you're left with is a dissatisfaction and a sticky ooze at the end of the day going, doesn't do it for me. You see, here's a great way that you need to view the things of this world. If you were to go on a rural trip, a trip into rural South Carolina, and to drive around on some of our beautiful back roads and our well-funded uh, in infrastructure uh, in our state, you, you would come to some old bridges. And these little bitty bridges out in the country roads have a big sign next to them. And the sign says this, Maximum weight X. And it fills in the blank. And what you know is that this bridge was never designed uh, to sustain the weight of that big truck or of that big car, whatever it is that's going across it. Friends, you need to have that visual in your mind as you approach every person, every relationship, and everything that you think you have to have in this life to satisfy your soul. And it needs to have a big sign right next to it that says weight limit. It was not designed to bear the weight of your soul. Your marriages, some of you have stepped into marriage and if you're a single adult, you're thinking that if I get married, then I'm going to be satisfied. And I tell every couple that I do premarital with, put a sign in front of your spouse uh, that says this, no, I cannot bear the weight of your eternal soul. Because if you do, and you're looking at each other to suck out life and to say, I've got to have this life, then what you have is what I like to call a tick, two-tick theology. You have two ticks and no hound dog. That you're sucking life out of one another. And at the end of the day, when you've sucked one another dry, and you look and you go, well, you don't have anything left for me. And the other guy, you don't have anything left for me. And I'm still dissatisfied. You know what you do? You walk away. Some of you parents need to look at your children and say, weight limit. Your children were not designed to bear the weight of your soul. And we crush them under that expectation. As you go to work tomorrow, as you go back into the beauty uh, of getting on a boat this afternoon or playing some golf or doing whatever, have that visual in your mind that said this was never designed to bear the weight of my soul. Jesus says this to the woman who was at the well in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. David knew where to go. David understood to come to God. And he understood that he could find his satisfaction in God. And as he found that satisfaction, it led him to two things. When you come and you tap into the source of God for eternal satisfaction and satisfaction in your life, it's incredibly freeing. And David said this, here's what happens when you find your satisfaction in God. You praise the Lord with your life. That we praise the Lord with our lives. The satisfaction that we found in the Lord is to be shared with the world around us. That we've come and we've found it. We were in this dry and arid land. And we found the well. We found the spring. We found the place to find satisfaction. And what's the thing that we should do with that? It would be sinful, as it were, for us not to praise and to bless and to extol His name in the world so that others could go, I want what they have. I want what they have. If you don't think that people are seeking something, go to the beach today and for no reason at all start staring out at the water and point. Thirty people are going to be around you. What do you see? What do you got? What's there? Guess what, Christians? We need to be standing around pointing at the throne room of God going, hey, here's my deepest satisfaction. Here's what I've found. Here's what I've got that you don't have. And people are coming around and go, what are you looking at? You've got cancer. Your family's a mess. Your parents left you. You've experienced a miscarriage. You are experiencing this. You've lost everything. You're alone in your latter years. All of this. And yet you're still looking and finding something deep and satisfying. What is it? Because I am experiencing all of those same things. And my life is a wreck. And yours isn't. David was saying, I will praise the Lord. I'm going to tell other people about it. I'm going to celebrate Him. I'm going to come and I'm going to, to because of your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He says also right there in that little section, I will lift up my hands in worship. Guess what that means? Good Presbyterian church. This is an okay posture of worship. So all the rubberneckers who are in here, when someone on your row goes, I'm going to praise the Lord. Are we Pentecostal and charismatic? How did they get in our church? What in the world? Let me help you. You can start here. Early. (laughs) Just a little praise. Maybe you can move to a little mid-praise. Mid-hand. Now, if you really want to be, yeah, maybe one hand. Never two hands at once. That's too much. But David was saying, when you've tapped into the source, when when you have tasted it, And how good it is. It flows out of you. In the midst of that. And we worship God. Doesn't this world need to have something so valuable presented to them. That it's worthy of all of their praise and adoration. For them to go. I've lifted my hands. To so many things. And been deeply and profoundly disappointed. What are you lifting your hands towards? And you go. Ah. Let me introduce you to Jesus in the midst of that. And then what David found is when you find your satisfaction in Christ alone, it leads you to worship Him, but it also leads you to cling to Him. Look at verse 8. It says, my soul, my life, my nephesh, my being, it clings to you, O God. It says this, I've found it. 
I've found you. I've found the source of life in the midst of the desert. I've found the rock in the desert that honey comes out of the rock and water comes out of the rock. You see, one of the most beautiful places that God can ever take you is into the wilderness because it's in those moments that Christ becomes so clear. And you run to Him and you cling to Him and you go, I'm taking you with me. When life gets good and we get out of the desert, I'm staying with you. I'm clinging to you. I'm holding fast to you. And what you find in the middle of that is that God's holding fast to you as well. But we look and we go, I'm not leaving this place. I'm holding on and I'm bear hugging it because I found a source of delight. One of my greatest memories as a dad. We lived in Midtown Memphis in a wonderful four-square house that was, you know, four rooms and, and there was a long hallway right down the middle. And it was my best part of my day. Life wasn't going well in the midst of other things, but I would come home and the boys were little and I'd open that front door and I'd hear a, hey, hold on, hold, stop, 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 stop. And I knew it was daddy jump time. Because I had to come in and I had to stop right there. And I had to get centered. And one by one, my three boys would run and jump as far as they could jump and just bear hug me as I bear hugged them. They were clinging to me. Because for them at that moment, I was an object of joy and life for them. That's what God is inviting you into. To look and to say, I'm here, let me be your delight. Come run to me. Come cling to me. Come and jump into my arms. And find in me all that you've ever hoped and desired in life. That's the invitation. Now we could end there, and at some level probably should end there, except David didn't end there. David went on and he had these last verses that say, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down. What David understood at the end of the day was God is my satisfaction, but I have an enemy and I have those who are around me. Here's what I need to know. I need to know that our God vindicates us at the end of the day. I need to know that God wins, that he comes through at the end. You see, David was incredibly personal. It was important for David to know that God wins, that God has him. You see, we don't have a rebellious son trying to violently overthrow us and to kill us. But we do have an enemy who prowls about trying to seek and destroy. Paul wrote that our wrestling, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. And we need to know, and you need to hear this, that God has won the battle on your behalf. And he's not going to lose you. When you're in the midst of the desert and you're wondering, he isn't going to lose you. He has you. He's won the victory. Paul took this and he wrote in those great words uh, in Romans 8. He goes, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What Paul was saying was when you're in the desert, and I know that you're seeking God and you're believing Him, but you need to know this. He's got you. 
He's not going to lose you. Some of you come from a theological framework that says you can lose your salvation. You will never sleep well at night if you hold that theological presupposition. But if you believe that it is God who is at work in you to do great things, that it is God before the foundation of the world who set you apart, it was God who pursued you, it was God who comes and changed your heart, took that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. So yes, you do choose God, as Joshua said. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I choose today to do this. Know this in the great words of R.C. Sproul, the wonderful theologian and pastor. You still choose God. God just changes the chooser so that you will. And isn't it great to know this, that God's love and the validity of His love for me is not based upon the volition of my choice, but it's upon His loving choice towards me that God set His love upon me. And so friends, know this today, that you will never be lost if you are in Christ. Ever. Isn't that great news? And you've got to preach that to your heart. Because Jesus comes and He says this incredible thing to us. Seek Me while I can be found. Come and dine, as it were, with Me and on Me. So today, He invites you here to this table to be incredibly satisfied in Him. Now, there's four types of people who are sitting here today. Those people are one, some of you are here and you don't believe in Jesus and you're not a follower of Jesus and you wouldn't claim to be. And I appreciate that you're here and I'm so thankful that you're here in our midst and I hope you were well loved and received today and maybe challenged to think through some of your thoughts and positions. Others of us or others who are here are Christian in name only. That you come to church and you do good things but you don't love Jesus. There's a false following as it were that comes that's still at the bottom of your theology and your salvation is you. That is based on you and your good works. There are others who are here who are following Jesus at a distance, kind of like Peter did when Jesus was arrested. He wanted Jesus. He just wasn't full in. He was keeping him at a distance. That's probably the most common place in the church. That most people want enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not so much Jesus that he changes our life. But then there's a fourth category, and those who cling to Jesus in the storm and in the sunshine. That Jesus is your treasure. So I invite all of you to consider this table. And if you don't know Christ, to repent and receive Him today. If you find Him at a distance, that you would draw near today and be blessed. And if you know Him, then eat, come and dine, and be satisfied. Let's pray.